This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to present the original radio broadcast from 80 years ago during the days of the war, with the occasional more recent radio program about the war. Today, we have the 1943 Year in Review from the Mutual Network. It covers the news of 1943, not surprisingly, mostly focusing on the developments of the war during the year. The Mutual Network was founded in 1934 and at one time had more affiliates than any other radio network. Despite that, it's barely remembered today. Most likely that's due to the fact that it was the only one of the big four radio networks to not expand into television. Still, Mutual continued to exist as a radio network through a series of owners until 1999. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In a moment, we shall present from New York, 1943 in review, a full-hour production based on the news of this eventful year. This year-end review is a tradition with Mutual. We wish to thank Theodore Granick, founder and director of the American Forum of the Air, for his cooperation in making this next hour available to us so that 1943 in review might be presented. The American Forum of the Air will resume its regular place in our schedule next Tuesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Wartime over most of these stations. 1943 in review. From coast to coast, WOR's War Services and News Division and the Mutual Network present their annual summary of the news of the year. Featuring from WOR's file of historic recordings, the voices of President Roosevelt, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, Madam Chung Kai-shek, General Eisenhower, Cordell Hull, General Montgomery. The actual sounds of history in the making. Sounds and voices as they were broadcast over mutual during the last 12 months. 1943 in review. This program is dedicated to the memory of Frank Jewell, foreign correspondent for the Mutual Broadcasting System, who lost his life early this year as he carried out an assignment with the same courage and spirit found in all the press correspondents 
of the United Nations. Tonight, your narrator is Frank Singheiser. When you add up the cosmic ledger and balance the book, you find that the story of 1943 was a story of hope for the forces of human decency. On the major battlefronts of the world, this was the year that we stopped taking it and began dishing it out. If in your imagination you'll spin the globe, you'll find that we have begun chopping off the tentacles of the Japanese octopus in the Pacific Theater. The immortal army of the Soviet Union has regained more than half of the territory originally seized by Adolf Hitler's Wehrmacht. The British and American armies have pushed the Germans off the African continent, knocked Mussolini from his perch, set the Balkans on fire, and bombed the living daylights out of the Rhineland itself. On the home front, this was the year that we got our first genuinely bitter taste of total war. 1943 brought the impact of stiff racing, an unprecedented draft, juvenile delinquency, heavy taxation, pension, strikes, and above all, casualty lists. President Roosevelt set the keynote for 1943 when, on a January afternoon, he addressed the opening session of the 78th Congress. Putting down his familiar black notebook, he gripped the reading stand, faced the representatives of the people, and said, This 78th Congress assembles in one of the great moments in the history of the nation. The past year was perhaps the most crucial for our modern civilization. The coming year will be filled with violent conflict, yet with high promise of better things. We must appraise the events of 1942 according to their relative importance. We must exercise a sense of proportion. First and important in the American theme has been the inspiring proof of the great qualities of our fighting men. They have demonstrated these qualities in adversity as well as in victory. As long as our flag flies over this capital, Americans will honor the soldiers, sailors, and Marines who fought our first battles of this war against overwhelming odds. The heroes living and dead of Wake and Bataan and Guadalcanal, of the Java Sea and Midway, and the North Atlantic convoys, their unconquerable spirit will live forever. Then in one of his most challenging statements, the president spoke in words that were to be underlined by smashing action in the months that followed. Franklin Delano Roosevelt told Congress and all America, I cannot prophesy. I cannot tell you when or where the United Nations are going to strike a next in Europe, but we are going to strike and strike hard. I cannot tell you whether we are going to hit them in Norway, or through the Low Countries, or in France, or through Sardinia, or Sicily, or through the Balkans, or through Poland, or at several points simultaneously. 
But I can tell you that no matter where and when we strike by land, we and the British and the Russians will hit them from the air heavily and relentlessly. Day in and day out, we shall heap tons upon tons of high explosives on their war factories and utilities and seaports. Hitler and Mussolini, they will understand now the enormity of their miscalculation. That the Nazis would always have the advantage of superior air power, as they did when they bombed Warsaw, Rotterdam, and London, and Coventry. That superiority has gone forever. Yes? We believe that the Nazis and the fascists have asked for it, and they're going to get it. The Axis did get it. Even as the President spoke, the Avengers of Dunkirk were on the march. British General Bernard L. Montgomery's fabulous Eighth Army, having plunged across Egypt, was heading across the sand toward Tunis and desert. Yes, sir. I'll see if you can catch up with him. How many times are you going to ask me that? How could I know? What's the matter with you anyway? You in a hurry to get your guts filled with spots? Oh, just all. I just all. How should I know when we're going to catch him? Stop bothering me, will you? All right. All right. You're really boiling there, aren't you? Right. Right, I'm boiling. I don't want to hit him with spring guns to drop eggs on him from here. I want to meet him. I want to get my hands on him. I want to strangle a lousy nazi till he gets purple in the face. You were at Dunkirk, I'll bet. No, but they got to me. I've got a little IOU to pay off. Folks in London? No. Brother in the army? No, I got mine at Plymouth. Air raid? Reprisal raid. Jerry flew over the streets and used machine guns. Yes. I read about that. They used them on school children. Mine was six. He had 40 bullets in him when they dug him out of the wreckage. I hope we hit those rats soon. Mother of God, I hope we hit them soon. Paths of escape for the Africa Corps were blocked. By the British, first under General Anderson, standing in the rain and slush near Medjaz el Bab. By the Americans, under Lieutenant Generals George Patton and Mark Clark. Rommel was more than elusive, he was exasperating. His brilliant retreat tactics proved conclusively that however and wherever we met the German army, the battle would be long and hard, and the result not at all guaranteed. Meanwhile, here at home, you and I were swallowing the first unpleasant pill in waging total war. The OPA cracked down. The weapon? Canned food racing. The target, Mr. and Mrs. John Brown. Now, you see, Mr. For every can you buy, I got to get blue points. Uh, yes, I get that. Except for certain things. Stuff that's not racing. But for the stuff that is, you got to use tickets. A, B, C. Then, later on, you use D, E, F. When they tell you. I think you use D first. Then E. After the A, B, C. You get it? Oh, yes, I... Uh, what did you say? I said, 
You don't need tickets except for what's on the list. Then this here lettering comes in. The lettering and the numbers. You gotta use the letters in the right order, and you count the numbers like they tell you. You add up the numbers, and you only use the numbers with the letters that are right. Oh, of course. I, uh, I think you better tell me that again, huh? You use the letters they tell you with the numbers. They have point values, see? And the cans have point values. And you add up the cans you want or the points you got, and you use the letters with those numbers on them. Only the letters that are good. Don't you get it? No. Well, look. Yes, here on the home front, Americans had to learn a new kind of mathematics. The larger portion of the American people fell in line, but some didn't. Because of them, an epidemic broke out. An epidemic as willful and dangerous as dynamiting military equipment. An epidemic simply described as the black market. To bring you to listeners a documentary report on the black market, Dave Driscoll, director of WOR's War Services Division, went out with OPA inspectors in New Jersey as they nailed a racketeer. They caught him in the dead of night. For a long time, he wouldn't confess. But finally, when they pointed out that trafficking in illegal foodstuffs would affect his son in service, the criminal broke down. Now you're about to hear the recording made with portable equipment on the spot as the black market operator confesses his crime. Now the black marketer, at the mention of his son in the army, breaks down and weeps. Listen. Listen, I wouldn't leave anything away of my son. Well, then why don't you come clean and tell us where you bought this stuff and, and uh, let's get at the source of it and let's get the thing cleaned up. For all that there is in this country. I told you when you was up there, I had all the trouble I wanted. I don't want no trouble. What we're interested in doing is seeing that the situation is cleaned up just as much as we possibly can and protecting the interests of, of you as a citizen and also your son as a soldier. That's right. So, but we can't well, do it. I wouldn't let him down for anything. Well, then why don't you tell us the... Uh, well, I can't remember. I can't think a lot of things that you want to know right offhand. After this retailer told the OPA his entire story, he was put on trial to face the consequences of his unpatriotic scheming. Later, he was charged and suspended for the duration. There isn't any happy ending to this particular chapter in the book of 1943. There won't be until both the black marketeer and the citizen who plays ball with him realize that when they are bootlegging and seemingly trivial things like a pair of stockings or a few gallons of gas, they are indirectly sabotaging the war effort. Actually, they are bootlegging in human lives. Time on the war front, Hitler's U-boats were fouling the Atlantic in wolf packs. Take her up to 10 meters. Super fair there, Commandant. 10 meters. Port, 15 degrees. Port, 15 degrees. Action stations. Action stations. Number one tube, stand by. Number one tube, stand by. <laughs> he looks like an American oil tanker. Numbers two and three tubes, stand by. Number two and three tubes, stand by. You know, Bruno Mussolini once said that he loved to see bombs exploding from a plane. He said they unfolded on the ground like flowers. I have a different case. To me, there's nothing so lovely as a burning ship against the night sky. <laughs> this will be beautiful. Beautiful. Hmm. Number one tube, fire. Number one, two. Fire! Vice Admiral Carter in Europe must... 
Vice Admiral Carl Dennett in his headquarters somewhere in Europe must have grinned like the Cheshire Cat in the dark days of early 43. Now as the year closes, the U-boat has been brought under control. Not defeated finally and forever, but one thing is certain, that smile has been wiped off the Nazi Admiral's face. U-boat warfare was a strong card of Hitler's. But even in the days of enormous submarine victories, an event occurred that gave Allied morale a great boost. The announcement of it was sudden, breathtaking, inspiring. Just out of reach of enemy hands, Franklin D. Roosevelt had met Winston Churchill in a Casablanca hotel, surrounded by barbed wire with fighter planes guarding the skies overhead. From Casablanca, despite the thousands of words that were exchanged, history will always remember just two. Unconditional surrender. When he returned to the United States at a dinner for Washington press correspondents, the president spoke of his tour. Most of all, he recalled meeting G.I. Joe, the everyday American soldier. Ask them what they're fighting for. And every one of them will say, I am fighting for my country. Ask them what they really mean by that. And you will get what on the surface may seem to be a wide variety of answers. One will say that he is fighting for the right to say what he pleases and to read and listen to what he likes. Another will say that he's fighting because he never wants to see the swastika flying over the old First Baptist Church on Elm Street. <laughs> Another soldier will say that he's fighting for the right to work, to earn three square meals a day for himself and his folks. And another one will say that he's fighting in this world, in this world war, so that his children and his grandchildren will not have to go back to Europe or Africa or Asia or the Solomon Islands to do this ugly job all over again. But all these answers really add up to the same thing. Every American is fighting for freedom. She was slim, delicate, lovely. Dark-eyed, wearing a black Chinese gown with a touch of jade and sequins. She appeared early this year before Congress. She captivated the hard-boiled politicos and the nation besides. She was Mei Ling Sung, daughter of Sun Yat-sen's revolution. But rather than charm the people, Madame Jiang Kai-shek preferred to set their hearts on fire with a ghastly, heroic story of China's five and a half years of war. To smash the illusions we harbored. To speak as one who has known it of Japan's design for conquest. Now the prevailing opinion seems to consider the defeat of the Japanese as of relative unimportance, and that Hitler is our first concern. This is not borne out by actual facts, nor is it to the interest of the United Nations as a whole to allow Japan to continue, not only as a vital potato threat, but as a waiting sword of democracy, ready. as a waiting sword of the smartly, ready to descend at a moment's notice. 
let us not forget that Japan in her occupied areas today has greater resources at her command than Germany. While the United States thrilled to such dramatic events as Madame Chang's visit, there was also the daily hard grind of winning the war. Now as we enter 1944, Washington has told Mr. John Brown what's going to happen next, as best it can. And John Brown doubtless has more intelligence than to ask his government to go in for crystal gazing. One of the uncertain factors affecting life at home in 1943 was the long, painful, swiftly changing picture in Africa. Can I help you, sir? Nope, I can make it. There we are. Now, you man, get this. You see this map? Our job is to cross the wadi. We'll go with the first infantry attack. Is that clear? Yes, sir. Zero hours, 17.50. Wait for the barrage. It'll come. Remember now, we've got to cross and then stay there. It looks like a ridiculous small piece of dirt, but it's important. I guess every one of these blasted hills is important. They were, too. Forcing Rommel's wall, forcing Rommel's back to the wall was a nerve-wracking achievement. By early April, Rommel was marching past Gabbas, Fox, and Seuss, where Carthage had stood. The so-called heroes of the Thousand-Year Reich were marching past the relics of a fallen empire. And as Rommel retreated, as he headed back toward Tunis and back further toward Cap Le Bon, the spectacle must have meant much to a former journalist a blacksmith's son, one Benito Mussolini, who could no doubt hear the drums of doom in the soft shuffle of British and Yankee feet across the Mediterranean. The past year scores of actors, actresses, dancers, and musicians have earned a distinguished title for themselves without being in uniform. They were the soldiers in Greek paint who under the auspices of the USO traveled from Kiska to Bombay, from New Caledonia to Iceland. Dodging bombs, they put on combat helmets, an old pair of shoes, sometimes even overalls, and flew or rode from camp to camp, from city to city, from nation to nation, to entertain the American doughboy. One of the soldiers in Greek paint was Al Shock, clown prince of baseball, who went through North Africa and Sicily by himself, playing for the boys. We take you now in fancy to one of those shows for our army. And then they called on a Cuban council. And he, in very dramatic gestures, eulogized the cost of the pitcher and tore the catcher of the Washington American League Baseball Club. Of course, he spoke in Spanish just like the other speakers. The only words I could make out of all the speeches in Spanish was the cost of the pitcher and tore the catcher of the Washington American League Baseball Club. Then they called on me. I figured, well, everybody else spoke in Spanish. I'll speak in Spanish. So here was my speech. The metros I keep the Barento see the cop for a hint to And see the La Fortra Senato. The La Castro pitch watching ten American League baseball. And the Villa Capo presenter to him a title to Della Bobata. Timberato. Sorry, catch watching ten American League baseball. Tim La Fortra presenter to the city for the game of Batatina. And he's a more than that. Look out the pitch, Gory Catch, watching Ton American League baseball. But Tila Popor Cinema, but I'm Tila Popor Cinema, but that's the Cinema de Cato. Look out the pitch, Gory Catch, watching Ton American League baseball, bourgeois, not Spania! And then the Cuban Council asked the Toastmaster what language I was speaking. 
Elsewhere in Europe, the Axis was recalling a promise made by an Englishman a long while ago. You have no chance. Soon, we will be coming over every night, every day. In rain, flood, or snow. We and the Americans. So said Air Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, head of the RAF Bomber Command, in a warning address to Hermann Goering's Luftwaffe and the German people. The RAF did come over in 1943. They came over with bells on. They operated a shuttle of destruction all over the roar. Mutual listeners this year heard the actual sounds of RAF fighter planes in action over occupied France. Listen now to a recording of that broadcast, Fighter Planes Over France. Recordings made inside a plane during combat. A British narrator explains. Your voices, the voices that you're going to hear now, are urgent, quick, sometimes angry and confused. But they are real. Hello, General 1, 7 recording. There are about 12 aircraft, 2 o'clock, 3,000 feet above. A fighting French pilot has seen the enemy. Hello, Yellow 1, he calls to his fight leader. There are about 12 aircraft at 2 o'clock, 3,000 feet above. 2 o'clock gives the position of the enemy as though the pilot were looking at a clock face. The Germans close in. They are Focke Wolf 190. The New Zealander, leading one Spitfire squadron, calls for the other squadron for help in dealing with them. All right, German squadron, we're being uh, attacked by 190. Come around, will you? Hello, this again. They are being attacked by 190. Come around, will you, and help us? Okay, I'm busy, hot. And the Spitfires put their noses up to meet the enemy above them. Come on, Gimlet Squadron, climb! Come on, Gimlet Squadron, climb. This is the moment when the skill and the nerves of a pilot can mean instant victory or death. <laughs> As the air offensive against the Nazis mounted, Winston Churchill appeared in the United States once more. In a dramatic appearance before Congress, the Prime Minister announced British intentions once Germany is beaten to her knees. He spoke bitterly of what Japan had done to the British Empire. And as he finished the galling list... Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, all this has to be retrieved. And all this and much else has to be repaid. let me say, let no one suggest that we have, we British, <coughs> have not at least as great an interest as the United States in the unflinching and relentless waging of war against Japan. <laughs> and I am here to tell you that we will wage that war side by side with you in accordance with the best strategic employment of our forces while there is breath in our bodies and while blood flows in our veins. On a windy July evening, the Allies began the largest amphibious operation in the world's history. A colossal armada of 2,000 ships, aided by ruthless air support, set sail for the island of Sicily. Santillaria had cracked. Sardinia had been overpowered. The ships were down. The flash on the invasion came over Mutual's wires. Here is the recording of Seymour Corman's broadcast. 
Rooster Seymour Corman at Allied Port Headquarters in North Africa. The long-expected Allied landing on European territory has come. Early this morning, Allied forces under the command of General Dwight Eisenhower set foot on the island of Sicily, a triangular footstool just west of Italy's toe, and separated from that toe at the northeast and only by the narrow straits of Messina. Before those ground troops came ashore, Allied air power had laid another tremendous design of destruction across Sicily. Bombers and fighter bombers throwing their explosives on vital objectives. And as the troops came up to the coast, our naval forces, which had escorted them across the sea, let loose their big guns, bombarding the shore defenses. The battering from the sea continued during the landing. The air smash just preceding the landing was the culmination of those terrific onslaughts during the past several weeks. Onslaughts which had among their principal objectives the airfields at Gabini in the eastern part of the island, Palermo, a western port, and Messina, the Sicilian terminal of the train ferry supply route to the mainland. Coincidentally with the landings, a message from General Eisenhower to the loyal Frenchmen of occupied France was put on the Allied radio. He called on Frenchmen to remain calm, not to be deluded by any false rumors which the actors may circulate. When the hour of action strikes, he said, we will let you know. And now we are locked in combat with the Axis again. We are on our way. The invasion of Sicily began on July 9th. And just 16 days later, on July 25th, over the room radio at 11 p.m. It is announced that the king has accepted the resignation from office as the head of the government, prime minister, and state secretary, tendered by his excellency, Benito Mussolini. Mussolini had resigned. He had met with Adolf Hitler just before it. He had talked with the Italian cabinet, and then one moment in the Palazzo Venezia, he began his journey back into oblivion. Here in the United States, when the news broke... Betty, what I'll do, pal? I'll give you ten to one to warn Europe's over by Christmas. You won't get that kind of dough from me, my friend. I'm no sucker. What do you mean? That's a fair bet. I know a guy who says Wall Street's given two to one we cross the channel by Labor Day. Well, really, now that Mussolini's gone, how much longer can Hitler hold out? It's in the bag, brother. It's in the bag. But it wasn't in the bag, and that kind of thinking must have delighted Hitler immensely. It was precisely what he wanted. We paid for it. We paid for it after General Montgomery spoke to his troops in Sicily. The Allied armies landed in Sicily on Italian soil on the 10th of July. Matt Henderson was supported by the Royal Navy and the Allied forces. And are uh-huh. today in possession of the whole island, except for the northeast corner, where the enemy is now hemmed in. I want to call on you, soldiers of the Eighth Army, that this has been a very fine performance. On our behalf, I have expressed to the commander of the Seventh American Army on our list the congratulations of the Eighth Army for the way the American troops have captured and cleaned up more than half the island. On February 9, 1942, at Pier 88 on the North River in Manhattan, the SS Normandy caught fire. For months, like a wounded giant, the Normandy, renamed the USS Lafayette, lay on her side. New Yorkers strolled past the dock saying, Look at her, huh? Boy, if she ain't a wreck. I'll never get that thing up. Not in a million years. 
This year in August, after the toughest salvage job in maritime history, she was righted. John Whitmore covered the event for WOR Mutual. At the present time, the angle of the ship is at 46.6, which is a considerable improvement over past reports made in other broadcasts. At the present time, the work is progressing satisfactorily. It's moving right along. I'm sure that in the background, you can hear the tremendous roar of the motors of the air compressors and large pumps that are sending cascades of water tumbling down the promenade deck, which is now almost entirely exposed. Directly before our microphones, we have Mr. John I. Tucker, Jr., who is the son of Mr. Tucker in charge of salvage operations for Mary Chapman Stock Corporation. Mr. John I. Tucker, Jr. is in charge of the diving operation here. And in order to give you a picture of what the divers were up against, I'm going to ask him, please, if he won't tell you what he considered to be the most hazardous operation for divers while working on the salvage of the ship. I'd say that the most difficult job that the divers had on this ship was the underwater burning, taking off superstructure. In this method, we had to use underwater torches and cut away the metal, and at the same time, we had to cling onto the metal and uh, have it taken away clear of the ship. I think the divers had a very hazardous job doing this. Mr. Tucker, uh, were there any divers lost in this entire salvage job? No, we've had 75 divers on this job ever since I've been here, and we haven't had any accidents whatsoever. Not a diver lost. That afternoon, the proud symbol of an almost forgotten France rose majestically again. The war continued to go well for us. It was midsummer. We kept talking about Mussolini. Maybe the boys would celebrate the new year with victory. In Canada, Roosevelt and Churchill met again in the Citadel, Quebec. After the conference, the president again warned the actors. And we have arrived harmoniously at certain definite conclusions. Of course, I am not at liberty to disclose just what these conclusions are. But in due time, we shall communicate the secret information of the Quebec conference to Germany, Italy, and Japan. We shall communicate this information to our enemies in the only language that twisted minds seem capable of understanding. Sometimes I wish that that great master of intuition, the Nazi leader, could have been present in spirit at the Quebec conference. I am thoroughly glad that he was not there in person. If he and his generals had known our plans, they would have realized that discretion is still the better part of valor and that surrender would pay them better now than later. Winston Churchill, too, reported to the world on the Quebec conference. He spoke of where we might strike next. You would certainly not wish me to tell you when that is likely to happen, or whether it be near or far. But whenever the great blow is struck, you may be sure that it will be because we are satisfied that there is a good prospect of continuing success and that our soldiers' lives are expended in accordance with sound military plans and not squandered for political consideration of any kind. Things went even better. 
Dawn was just coming up over the Straits of Messina on September 3rd, when Montgomery's men got into their boat, sailed across the Straits, and set foot on Italian soil. They didn't meet too much resistance. At 6.30 p.m. on September 8th, over the radio in North Africa came a voice. This is General Dwight D. Eisenhower, Commander-in-Chief of the Allied Force. The Italian government has surrendered its armed forces unconditionally. As Allied Commander-in-Chief, I have granted a military armistice, the terms of which have been approved by the government of the United Kingdom, the United States, and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Thus, I am acting in the interest of the United Nations. The Italian government has bound itself to abide by these terms without reservation. The armistice was signed by my representative and the representative of Marshal Badoglio, and it becomes effective this instant. Hostilities between the armed forces of the United Nations and those of Italy terminate at once. All Italians who now act to help reject the German aggressor from Italian soil will have the assistance and the support of the United Nations. Italy had surrendered. We'd been right. We could let down. We could relax. Everything was hunky-dory. It was in the bag, they said. But was it? Then we caught it. We walked into the trap. It was at Salerno. Salerno was the price we paid for the spree begun by Mussolini's resignation. Salerno taught us a lesson. Dave Driscoll was there for Mutual. He landed with the boys on the beachhead. He saw what happened. And Dave Driscoll is here now in person to tell that story. The story of Salerno cannot be told in one or two minutes. British and Americans alike aged years on those beaches, and many are still there, buried in the sand. The story of Salerno is one of tremendous sacrifice and courage. Just plain guts, if you will. Unlike at Sicily, the weather was on our side. During the first two weeks, there were only six hours when the Navy was unable to unload supplies on the beach because of rough water. I didn't go ashore until D plus five, six days after the first landing. But the situation ashore was not much different then than it was after the first few hours. As we stepped ashore, the first man we met was Randolph Churchill, son of the British Prime Minister. He calmly told us the German tanks from the night before had battered their way down to within 600 yards of the sand on which we stood. He believed, however, the reinforcements which we had brought in with the convoy would stabilize the Allied position. They did, but that night was one of the toughest nights of the first 10 days. The German bombers came over with everything they had left. The German tanks made a last desperate attempt to push the Americans and British from the soil of the European continent. Everyone had underestimated the job ahead, not necessarily from a physical point of view, but from a psychological point of view. We knew the Germans were tough, but we were mentally thrown off guard by the Italian surrender. And I doubt if back home the celebrating Americans had any idea of the close call we had at Salerno. Had it not been for the rallying power stamina, the courage, and the fighting ability of the American soldier and the British Tommy, we might now be making plans to try it Italy again, with the invasion from the West something to be thought about later. Yes, in Italy, G.I. Joe gave up his blood and his life for the optimism. Even in the midst of the awful struggle in Italy, the American private dreamed of home. In a memorable broadcast from Algiers, Dave Driscoll spoke of what was in the hearts of our fighting men. Here is the recording of what he said. I'm about to leave this part of the world and go home. To every soldier and sailor I know, that means I'm going back to Main Street, Michigan Boulevard, Hollywood and Vine, or Broadway, to family and friends, to good food, a decent drink, ice water, ice cream, to where a guy can sleep late in the morning if he wants to, to a place that many an American fighting man on the slopes of Italy fears will be a never-never land for him. 
I've talked with hundreds who have said they would gladly trade anything, everything they possess, to be able to be the same person. They said that, but given the opportunity, I wonder if they really would. The American is fighting for the right to have those things, the ice cream, the right to sleep late in the morning. And I don't believe he would go home if given the chance. After one has been at the battlefront, he finds it difficult to leave the job unfinished. There is a nostalgia about it all that is hard to define or describe. I felt that way when I left Italy a few days ago. As our vessel drew away from the coast with those terrible mountains rising into the clouds, it was hard to keep the tears back. I sailed from the then quiet southern anchorage, which itself was a hell on earth for ten days only a short time before. And as I looked back, ships were unloading their cargoes of men and materiel in a quiet, sort of methodical way. The war had moved on, at least the dirty part of it. No longer was there a symbolic pall of dust and smoke screening the little valley of Python that splits the mountains south of Salerno. No longer was there a sound of battle, but the valley was still there. Hallowed ground to every American who ever was there. And there are thousands of them there now who will never leave and will never know whether their sacrifice was appreciated. small threads woven together that make the larger pattern. So this, too, was 1943. The talk of the post-war world, the talk of plastic cars and helicopters, the razzmatazz of politics about the 1944 presidential campaign, pay-as-you-go income tax, the murder of Harry Oaks. The shortage of butter, the waiting for the laundry, the independent maid, the priceless nylon, and the letters, waiting for the letters from that camp down south. Then waiting for them from APO number something, their postmaster. Being afraid the doorbell would ring and there'd be a boy with a telegram. I remember going upstairs to my son's room I don't know how many times. I went through his dressing, found it his clothes, looked through his old school books with the childish handwriting scribbled inside the cover. I remember how I reassured my wife, how I tried to cover up to keep going. But somehow it didn't work. It didn't fool her at all. We'd wake up in the middle of the night and talk and pray. I never thought human beings could take that much. I never believed that a man could live on hope and hope alone. While Mr. and Mrs. John Brown were struggling along on the home front, Mr. and Mrs. Sauerkraut in Berlin were getting their heads blown off. Before as the year approached its close, the RAF over Germany let loose with a Sunday punch. At the height of the RAF offensive, mutual broadcast the recorded sounds and voices of British flyers over the German capital as they dropped their blockbusters. Listen. Hello, Bombardier. Okay, when you are. Bombardier. Thanks to those men, Berlin is tonight the most heavily bombarded city on earth. But the United Nations were not content this year with military prowess. They worked for political unity. 
Inner Moscow Airport recently came Anthony Eden and Cordell Hull to confer with Foreign Secretary Molotov. Talks were held for days in the Sturdanovka House, and from those talks came significant agreement on international cooperation. Addressing Congress when he returned, Cordell Hull explained the Moscow Agreement. In that document, it was jointly declared by the United States, West Britain, the Soviet Union, and China <coughs> that their united action pledged for the prosecution of the war against their common enemies will be continued for the organization and maintenance of peace and security. To this end, the four governments declared that they recognized the necessity of establishing at the earliest practicable date a general international organization based on the principle of the sovereign equality of all peace-loving states and open to membership by all such states, large and small. I should like to lay particular stress on this provision of the Declaration. The principle of sovereign equality of all peace-loving states, irrespective of size and strength, as partners in a future system of general security, will be the foundation stone upon which the future international organization will or should be constructed. In the course of his speech, the Secretary of State paused often to pay tribute to the Soviets. Tonight, the Russian soldier stands by the historic Dnieper, some of his comrades not too many miles east of Latvia. And while this gigantic rollback was being staged for Sickelgruber's benefit, Premier Tojo was also getting his due, and fighting back, among other things, with feudal propaganda. Hello, Americans. This is Radio Tokyo. We bring you now another record by your own Tommy Dorsey. He plays Stardust. Listen to this record and think of your home. Doesn't it make you want to go home and give up this fighting? This little bit of Japanese wishful thinking, typical of what is being deemed at Americans in the Pacific, was a double-edged sword. It was no wonder Radio Tokyo whined, Please, go home. This year we swept the Jap out of the Aleutians, took Salamawa, Lai, New Georgia, and Rendova. And in the Bismarck Sea, we scored one of the great air victories of the war, as land-based planes destroyed a gigantic Japanese convoy. In the Bismarck Sea battle, the Japs lost 15,000 men. We lost 20. The Jap lost 95 fighter planes. We lost four. And you count the number of surviving Japs on the fingers of one hand. The Bismarck Sea was probably our greatest victory of the year over Tokyo, but it was not the most agonizing, the bloodiest, the highest price victory. The Marines handled that one. In the Gilbert at Tarawa. On a troop transport heading for Bakio, the island that was Tarawa's main fortification. Want to play a little gin? Yeah, I'm sick of it. Okay. I think I'll lie down. Oh, boy, am I sleepy. You seen that detective magazine around? Oh, it's on your bed. That's the way it was. Quiet, easygoing, confident. The Marines had been told that they would be preceded by one of the most terrific bombings and shore bombardments in the entire history of warfare. So they relaxed. They read about Dick Tracy. They cleaned their rifles. It was stifling hot, and they felt drowsy. Then as they climbed into their boat, as some of them were still creeping down over the sides, hanging onto the net. The Japs caught it all right. The battleship opened up on Bakio. Would the Jap give up? Would he run? How much was he holding back? A firing increased. 
can't use the Higgins boat. Well, it's too shallow. That means we got to walk into that machine gun. That was exactly what it meant. It meant getting out of their boats and walking waist deep directly into the face of a Jap machine gun. Sniper, take cover! Sniper, The men who survived it say it took a thousand years to wade through that water. Marines were falling in waves, coughing out their last breath into the water, spinning around in pain as Jap bullets hit them in the throat and temples. In square yards, the Marines were paying the greatest cost in men they have ever paid. They stood up under precision firing, dynamite, flamethrowers. They kept right on wading through that water toward the beach. By nightfall, they had a grip on a small fringe of the shore. It took 48 hours before the Jap began to lose. Then, on the third day, the island was ours. More than a thousand men had died to take it. More than two thousand had been wounded. Lying in a stretcher in the Pacific sunlight, a Marine turned to his chaplain, grinned, and did not speak. The chaplain bent over him. How do you feel, son? I'm better, Father. Better. It's all over, huh? Yes. How do we make out well, you might not understand it now, son. But I think as long as man is on this earth, people will remember how you made out. A sometimes pathetic and sometimes infuriating account of how the Jap feels and behaves came from Mitchell's Royal Arts Gunnison when he arrived in New York this month on the exchange ship Griptholm. Interviewed by Dave Driscoll when the boat landed in Jersey City, Gunnison spoke of his experiences as a Jap prisoner. Well, Mr. Gunnison, what would you say were the uh, worst features of internment under the Jap? I'd say without quibbling that the lack of nutritious food, the lack of proper hospitalization and medicine, the general filth, and finally... The general brutal Japanese attitude of you're our enemies, whether you're civilians or soldiers. We hate you, and we'll show you who's the top dog here in the Orient. I served on the internee camp committees at my camp in Cafe in China, and I found in my daily contact with the Jap officials at our camp that they studiously blocked almost every move we made to try to improve our conditions of living. As Winston Churchill said, all this and much more will be repaid. The grand climax to the story of 1943 came when four men met. In the exotic atmosphere of Cairo, Generalissimo and Madame Zhang talked with President Roosevelt and Great Britain's Prime Minister Churchill. Then, in Tehran, after the people of the United Nations had wondered and doubted for months, the two leaders of the democracies in the West at last came face to face with Marshal Joseph Stalin. To plan the end of the war and the peace to follow. After he returned from Tehran, the president spoke to the United States again on Christmas Eve from his Hyde Park home. First, he spoke of our military plan. The Russian army will continue its stern offensive on Germany's eastern front. The Allied armies in Italy and Africa will bring relentless pressure on Germany from the south. And now the encirclement will be complete as great American and British forces attack from 
other points of the compass. The commander selected to lead the combined attack from these other points is General Dwight D. Eisenhower. His performances in Africa, in Sicily, and in Italy have been brilliant. He knows by practical and successful experience the way to coordinate air, sea, and land power. All of these will be under his control. The blueprint has been drawn up and the final OK has been written. Now, slowly, the last and greatest act of the drama is taking place. In the past 48 hours, Americans heard these headlines. General Eisenhower declares that the Allies will win the European War in 1944. American Marines have established two beachheads in the Cape Gloucester area of the Japanese island of New Britain. The British Navy has destroyed the Nazi mystery battleship, the Scharnhorst. And just a few hours ago, Secretary of War Simpson spoke from his office in the Pentagon building, Washington. It was a message to the American people following government seizure of the railroads to forestall a strike that might impede the drive to end the war. Secretary Simpson made a dramatic analogy as he explained that if we utterly destroyed Hitler's railroads, we would have inflicted a major catastrophe. Now this nation has faced a similar military catastrophe of equal and crushing magnitude in this threat to halt the operation of the railroads. By swift and decisive action, it has been avoided. We shall not hand to Germany and Japan this great military victory. The railroads will continue to run. In this grave emergency, I ask the full devotion of all the men and women in the railroad service. For my own part, I pledge to all Americans that the War Department and the Army will not fail them in this great trust. So, as the year 1943 draws to a close, we've not only shifted from the defense to the offense, but we're beginning to take the actual step in an organized plan to smash the enemies of civilization. have been listening to 1943 in Review, presented by WOR's War Services and News Division and the Mutual Network in its annual summary of News of the Year, featuring WOR's file of historic recordings. The program was directed by Roger Bauer, supervised by Edith Mezaran, and written by Howard Merrill. Your narrator was Frank Singheiser.
Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts for past episodes and more information 